We're in this series, starting Romans, called How to Be Human. Now, some of you, I think, over the last few days, have felt, we're going to take a whole year to go through Romans? Well, that's actually, we're not going to only go through Romans, but it's going to be chunks. It's going to be like a chunk of like nine, and then we'll have a couple interludes, and then another nine, and another interlude, another nine. So about 27 messages altogether, which is only half a year. Now, I could be Donald Gray Barnhouse, who preached through Romans for six and a half years, like two or three verses at a time. Uh, and there may be some sections of Romans that would well be worth, and maybe we need to slow down in that way. But we're only going to do it for like 27, 28 messages. So, uh, and it won't all be me. Okay, I've got much better people who are ready to step into that. Um, this morning, we're taking a look at the beginning section, and we talked last week about the book of Romans is kind of reflecting to us about what it means to be human. How do we, as the recreated humanity of Jesus, um, live? And what do we do? How do we see ourselves as, as connected to, the, to larger humanity? This morning, I want to take a look at, at some incredibly, in fact, impossibly good news that Romans begins with. And so in order to do that, I'd like to share some good news with you. Um, now, I'm going to define and reflect this good news, what good news means, a little bit more nuanced than this. But it is my pleasure to announce and introduce to you for the very first time at Ministic Community Church, Josh and Danielle Seward. Would you please stand? It's exciting, it's warming for, for those especially who are close to them. If you had a chance to watch their, um, their service, you got to both be encouraged about what marriage is, and warmed by the affection, and also a, a couple little giggles at, uh, at an appropriate time. Uh, when Josh decided that he was going to, uh, that there were two husbands or something, I can't remember how that all went down. And if you did not see that, make sure you either go back in the notes uh, for, from Carrie Kanish or talk to me and I'll give you the link and you can still watch it. Um, but it's good news, right? And, uh, and uh, when we think through the gospel, uh, especially as it's revealed for us in this context in the book of Romans, there is a lot about good news. Now, most especially in this first chapter, and in what most people, when they read through the book of Romans or study it or write commentaries on it, would say is the foundational kind of couple of verses that summarize the whole, uh, the whole book, the word gospel is actually critically important. And it means good news. It's a reflection of some proclamation of good news. Now, I want to take a look at what that means, and I want to look at the passage. But uh, let, me, um, let me read that passage for you. Uh, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. It'll be up here on the screen. This is Romans 1, uh, verses 1 through 17. A Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, who and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, 
we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from his name's sake. Oh, sorry, did I? I'm trying to do this from memory, and ah, what did I just finish reading? Draw over and roll. Did I read that? Verse 5. Oh, verse 5. Ah, Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Okay, I'm going to actually read it here. <laughs> and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith. Your faith has been reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. And here's this kind of key verse that suggests theme. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, one of the struggles that we have here uh, in this context is, um, what do we mean by, the, by, by some of these words? Um, and especially gospel, which is good news, right? And it's easy to think that oh, it's, in opposition to bad news, right? And we had that tension at play at Monistic, right? Like, there's enough bad news about COVID and the political situation and all that stuff. And so John Krasinski reminded us we can have good news. And then, of course, Sandra took up that mantle and she proclaimed some good news to us each week. And it was good news. You laughed at those things. You learned something about other people in the congregation through those things. Um, some of it just made you feel warm and connected to people in a way that you may not have had otherwise, right? Good news. So is, is that what Paul is about? It's just like, oh, we've had bad news. Let's have some good news, and the good news is about Jesus. On one level, that sounds um, like the kind of thing it would be. And so uh, I think it's important we understand how words work uh, and how words specifically change in order for us to understand what this good news might mean. Just realizing I might. And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at a Bible project video. It's about four minutes long. Uh, and they talk about the word gospel uh, in the New Testament, uh, which is the Greek word euangelion. Um, and it's it's uh, and it's going to help us kind of frame this, and then I want to talk about words generally, because the words Paul uses here 
are not unique to him, and they're not highly spiritual. They're words that were common in the Roman Empire, and they had a certain context and meaning, and they had a political kind of thrust to them. And I think it's helpful for us to see them and how words work in that context as we frame a little bit of what's going on here. And so before I do that, um, euangelion. If you know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So, let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, beser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, beser is what we might call national news, or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger of Biser that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news kings, whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so, when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity even toward your enemies. His good news required you to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his death. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a faithful king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king, whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the Evangelion that all authority in heaven and on earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the gospel. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins, and then was raised from the dead. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, traveled all around, sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. 
It's where the real leaders are the servants, because the last are first, and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome, because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it, but something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel becomes the best news that you've ever heard. Okay, you can go to the next slide. So one of the questions we have, I have, at least for us at this point, is, is how do we knee-jerk into a, a, another understanding of the gospel or the good news? Like, uh, like when I act, if I was to ask you, in a, in a sentence or two, I'm, I'm not asking you, but mentally go through this exercise, right? What is the gospel? Just think about that for a second. What is the good news? Now, impulsively, I think, especially uh, uh, out of kind of the revivalist movement and, uh, and a lot of evangelicals, we would often say that the gospel is that Jesus died on a cross for your personal sins, and if you trust him as your savior, you can go to heaven forever, right? That's the gospel. That's what we share. We, in fact, we even have a version of it when we the, called the Roman Road, where we walk through the gospel in our in the gospel through the Book of Romans. But my question is: is is that really actually the gospel, or is that a truncated, maybe simplistic presentation that misses a whole lot? And the reason I think this is important is because. We often, uh, at least as human beings, we can work into a kind of a knee-jerk reaction about certain words. And so as an illustration, I'm going to try and make this point. So have, you, have any of you guys used the word guy before? Yeah. Do you know what it means, like, what, where, like the etymology of it, where, what the source of it is? Well, in, in 1603, there was a guy named, there was a guy, I can't believe I did that. Ah. There was a bloke named Guy Fox who um, was trying to blow up the House of Parliament. And, uh, and so, uh, this was in 1605, sorry. And so, to kind of represent the animosity towards him, they named, uh, they gave it a holiday named Guy Fox Day. And it, it was commemorated by parading and burning a, a mannequin or some effigy of Guy Fox. And uh, out of that, so the, you know, early to mid 1600s, the word Guy came to mean a, 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 a person who was grotesque in appearance. Somebody was horrific to look at, a, a representation of everything that is against what we want, right? Seems right. <laughs> okay, guys. Um, and so that's what, it, that's what the, word, the, word, the word was. Uh, and it, after a while, the kind of negativity of that softened, except for Mark. But uh, by the late 1800s, it really actually started to mean any man. And so it, would rep it kind of replaced the word fellow. Like, uh, so I don't go in front of my students, male students, and go, so how are you fellows doing? Or the British is like, how are you blokes doing? But, uh, but we use the word guys, right, to symbolize that. Uh, in, in the 1900s, it then became kind of non-gender in many ways. And so we would refer to a whole group as guys, right? 
And, and so, like I did just, and I did that provocatively, how are you guys doing? And I, uh, for me, who, I, who is an English teacher and who is concerned about gender inclusive language, uh, that, is a, that became an issue in three or four years ago in my teaching because I realized I would always refer to students as, hey guys, how, how is it, or are you guys getting this, or what do you guys think about this, right? Uh, and so then we're defining it a little bit differently, and even in some cases, potentially, and I think appropriately, moving away from it in a non-to-be-applied uh, uh, kind of cross-gender. And so my question, here's, here's my point. When we think of the word guys, we don't think a despicable, horrific-looking person, right? But if you were in 1608 or 1635 or 1722, you would know. Like that's what the assumption would be, and you would not use that uh, that word for other people or in in broad spectrum about guys and girls. It just would not apply. It wouldn't work that way. Language changes. That's over 400 years. And in the English culture, right? We're maintaining the same language. And so we get a word like gospel, and it means good news, but the assumptions and the kind of, the, the, either the baggage or the other elements around it, over five times longer duration than the word guys, and across cultures, and outside of different kind of geographic contexts, um, we have to do sometimes some work. Now, Often, and I'm going to use the words of Paul again, we, we struggle to study to show ourselves approved to God a workman, and we just like quick, easy, simplistic explanations, right? And sometimes we never navigate beyond, you know, what we understood about words like gospel from when we were seven years old, and it was explained to us by our parents, and we accepted Jesus for the first time. But I think there's some nuance there that is important. They reference the idea that the gospel is the royal proclamation of a new king. And if you were in, uh, in Palestine at, at the time of Jesus, uh, and he is declaring uh, that he is representation, representing the gospel, I mean, you would understand that. Because it was a thoroughly Greek word, and it was grounded deeply into the Roman culture. And so uh, when, uh, when one emperor was uh, uh, displaced or killed or died and then another like Nero who's who is on the throne at the time that Paul's writing comes there would be a royal proclamation of good news of the new king who is in place and so you see when Jesus and when the gospel writers begin to use this Greek word that's very understood in the culture they live in as a declaration of a new king who's going to usurp or at least alter the reality of what's gone before, you see how provocative that potentially is. But it also is grounded in a, a way of thinking about the world that's not just me in my small corner of spiritual life and you in yours, right? There's not kind of this isolationist, individualistic, uh, um, kind of only spiritual sense of the word. The gospel is for all peoples, it says. And, and one of those other words that's used there that we kind of, I think, sometimes have, uh, the translation confuses us um, is, the is the translation of the word Gentile uh, in the book of Romans here in this passage. Well, the word that's used there and a number of other times through the book of Romans 
is, is not actually directly translated Gentile. Gentile. It's, it's, the, it's the word ethne, which we get the word ethnic, and it's better to be translated as nations. And so the good news is of a new king who is coming and is going to, in, in some ways, overturn the empires of this world and will do something profound for all nations. It begins with the understanding of Israel, uh, he says in this passage, and ultimately uh, to all people, to all ethne, to all nations. And so I think I want to just kind of, in some senses, kind of try to take a look again at this passage with that bigger sense of the word gospel. But before I do that, I want to read um, the, the passage that is alluded to uh, in that video, and that is the declaration by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 61. And this is Isaiah who says, and this is picked up by Luke, or sorry, by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, verse 18. But this is a direct statement from Isaiah. Jesus is saying. And so Jesus actually says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, the anointing of a king, uh, to proclaim the good news. That proclaim is the, is, the, uh, is the messenger sending forth the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, uh, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus says that exact same thing. And then after he reads that, he, it says he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, he wasn't just saying, not only is the good news of a new king going to be here, and not only am I announcing that, he's declaring that, that he is that king. That he is the one um, who, is, who is coming uh, and is the source of good news. Now, when we think knee-jerk about how we think of words, we don't think of the things that Jesus says are the good news, right? Like, how many of you, when you were kind of thinking that, don't raise your hands because then that could lead to pride if you got it. No. But um, how many of you thought, so this is the good news, um, that he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That there's something in the good news about God meeting the brokenness of this world to bring deliverance and healing and life. Now, we think about it in our knee-jerk way of like a very personal, individualistic, spiritualized kind of salvation. There's nothing political about it or nothing intrusive in society uh, about it in our kind of, kind of spiritualized, individualized sense, right? But that's not the, the sense we get from Jesus. That this is an intrusion into the, the powers, the empires, the, the, the colonies of this world. It's, it's a message against the forces of, of colonization, against the forces of control and power um, that are at play. Now, Christians sometimes have kind of got a nuance of that and leaned into it and then said, oh, Jesus is going to have this new kingdom. And so they get all about the same things the old empire is about, and that is power and domination and control. And every time the church for the last 2,000 years has said, oh, then let's bring about this new kingdom by, by some kind of force or by aligning ourselves with power, uh, 
that becomes very perverted and destructive and ultimately hurts the force of the good news. On Saturday, or sorry, on Friday, when I heard um, the news that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away, um, uh, I was at first extremely sad for lots of reasons. Um, uh, but one of them is because I knew that this was going to activate a level of power controlling, um, seeking uh, forces of power to uh, find intrusion into the Supreme Court uh, in a way that would kind of overtake the election that was about to happen and uh, would shine a light on the reality of Christians always wanting to be al aligned with sources of power. And um, I love one quotation she has where she's, she says, um, she didn't want people to regard her for her sex or for her gender. She just wishes that her brethren would take their boots off the necks of the women around them. Because it was, she saw in the world around her that women were oppressed by men in almost every facet of civil society, and she wanted, uh, she, she longed for some kind of release. Now, that is, in some sense, aligned with the good news. A, a God who is not about oppression and is longing for the freedom of those around him. Um, there's some other words we need jerk into, and they're in this passage as well. And so we'll put up that last uh, passage there. Yeah, so th this is kind of our core, and specifically verses 16 uh, to 17. But one of the other words that Christians are famous for kind of knee-jerking into is the word salvation. Okay? Uh, what does it mean to be saved? Uh, and we take on a sense of it is only what is called eschatological salvation or the end salvation, right? Where Jesus rescues me because of my personal sin and gives me a, and, and will ultimately rescue me from this world and place me into some future abode in heaven for eternity. Um, but that's not the thrust of the New Testament at all in relation to that word. Most times that word does have kind of a grounded reality about salvation that happens here now. And it does have, in, in many ways, a kind of, in their context, we've got to be really careful about this, but in their context, a kind of a political uh, kind of sense, right? Um, of being saved from the power and force and brute reality of the Roman Empire in that kind of context. And that's how the word was used at, at all points. Um, it can mean the, the kind of the process by which God rescues us and, and leads us away from the power of sin and its dominance in our life day by day now. Uh, the, 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 the book of Romans itself in chapter 8 and in, and in Revelation will, will suggest to us that, that God's ultimate salvation is not that we get kind of rescued and we go fly away somewhere else, but that we... Uh, that God himself will come and will dwell with humanity and all of creation, all of humanity will be, uh, as they follow, or as they trust Christ, will be re made, made new. The kind of new creation thrust and force of God's grace at work. Or the word apocalypse. Do you see the word apocalypse in the last two verses there? Uh, it's there. Apocalypses. You mean there's no, like, superhero who's going to come and destroy the kind of zombies or whatever is there? Where's the word apocalypsis? It's the word revealed. Revelation. Anybody? Right? So when we think of apocalypse, we think of 
woo, like some big event of humanity at some end times. And what, what, what the idea here is that God is beginning to reveal his outflowing grace and salvation. Um, and that is the force of the gospel. And so all of these words, I think, are helpful for us to kind of reground ourselves in what they are and what they mean. In, in every case, um, they had a kind of a, a cultural kind of force and language in the Roman Empire. Uh, the, the, the thing that's disarming when Christians declare, this is in the end of Romans, um, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus, uh, Christos a curios, he's the Lord, is that it was only Caesar is curious, Caesar is Lord. And that was, the, that was you had to proclaim that in, in the Roman Empire. And Jesus disrupts that and proclaims himself as the curios, as the Lord, and the Christians start proclaiming him as Lord, not uh, Caesar as Lord. Right? which is highly disruptive in the Roman Empire, and for which numerous Christians, hundreds or thousands of Christians, died. Uh, the idea of the word son of God um, was proclaiming the Roman Emperor, who was the son of the divinity um, in their representation. Um, even the idea of coming, or like we use the word second coming in that kind of context, um, the Greek word was used all the time of, of, a, of a leader or the emperor coming to a city uh, to visit or to proclaim something. Um, the idea of savior, uh, even the word church, ecclesia, was a gathering together of people. And all of these are, in a sense, usurped by um, Paul in these early uh, verses of this passage where he takes the kind of Roman language, the Roman system, and he's overturning it, and no longer are people proclaiming allegiance to Caesar as Lord and Savior and the Son of God, but now they are proclaiming their allegiance to, to another king, to another ruler, to one who is going to shape their lives far beyond what Roman, Rome could ever do. One that's not by the force of domination and control, but instead by the freedom of the Holy Spirit alive, by a path of forgiveness and humility and, and servanthood. And so this is, this is kind of the, the unfolding good news that Paul uh, talks about. He says, interestingly here, he says, I'm not ashamed of this good news. Now, in, in some ways, it, a lot of Christians have, would have good reason to kind of shy away or balk at this reality, right? Because to declare Jesus as, as Lord is against the will and, and, and power of the empire. But he says, I'm not ashamed to proclaim this good news of Jesus as the Savior and King of all the world. Now, I think if we, I'm going to go I. There are lots of presentations of the gospel that I am ashamed about that I, I think are the voice of Jesus in our world is being uh, hijacked by uh, a movement that has perverted it and destroyed it. Um, and I think we, one of our primary uh, forces of apologetic before the world now is not that we are trying to proclaim Jesus as death, dead, buried, and resurrected, but it's which Jesus that we are aligned with. Are we aligned with the Jesus that uh, is always perverting the gospel and connecting it to political power? Or uh, the, I'm, I'm ashamed of the gospel that has colluded with, um, with uh, 
um, past administrations to commit cultural genocide. Um, I'm embarrassed and ashamed of Christians who proclaim the right to life and then lobby for the right to bear arms or uh, in a kind of bloodthirsty revenge uh, seek the death penalty. I'm embarrassed by Christians who project a kind of segregation model of life that sees refugees and immigrants as the enemy, who uh, heaps nothing but um, vitriol or, or negativity on um, other religious senses without any kind of nuance of uh, just we hate them. That's not representing the Jesus I know. Um, or any kind of mean-spirited approach to youth crime or to drug addiction or immigration policies or homelessness. Um, I'm ashamed of a kind of a, and I'm taking some of these from a book here, um, which you'll hear quite a bit in this series, but um, I'm ashamed of a consumerism and greed that are embraced in the name of the gospel of abundance uh, and has a, a, a veneer of very thin veneer of, of Christian spirituality or shallow experience driven worship or sermons that move uh, sorry, that move in, in more common language of advertising uh, than of tr the true Jesus or people who confuse the hope of America or the hope of Canada um, at, with the kingdom of God or bullies who in the name of truth create YouTube videos or podcasts that condemn anybody who doesn't fit their narrow theological frame of reference. Those are embarrassing. And, and, and when I talk to my peers at, in, in, at, at, in, that I work with, um, I have to defend myself against those images of Jesus um, almost all the time. Uh, we have a Snapchat between five of us, who some who I taught with and one who I teach with now, and uh, and those are the kind of things that they're just throwing up those news stories, right? Oh, this happened where this group of Christians were uh, lobbying against uh, same-sex marriage, and here's what they said, and then I and I think they know by now, but because I just outright condemn that as well, um, but they they almost implicitly say this is Jesus, right? That's not Jesus. That's not the good news. The good news is about God's delivering power for all of humanity. And so we, we need to walk through and work through what it means to follow Jesus. Is it just kind of knee-jerk, well, we, we, here, here's the gospel. I believed that when I was seven years old. I've been following Jesus. And we never get past to, to how that affects how we live now. We never get to the point where we understand and try to work through the dynamics of the culture we live in in a way that um, brings that source of life and healing and salvation for all people. One of the books that I'm reading right now is um, called Christ in Crisis by Jim Wallace. Um, he writes a blog, or has a blog called uh, Sojourners.net, and uh, he's provocative, he'll push you a bit. Um, but he, uh, this is actually not him, this is an introduction to the book. And so he says this, um, because he's concerned about how Jesus is, is heard and understood, especially in the Western kind of language, and especially as, as it ties itself to power. And he says, it's not an exaggeration to say that Christianity in America, and I'm going to go, it's much bigger than that. He's writing it as American, that's his frame of reference, but it's bigger than that, is in danger of being hijacked 
not by emergent secularism, but by, the, by being popular identified with right-wing political agendas, by the propagation of the so-called prosperity gospel, by far too often being associated with thinly-veiled religious animosity, often directed at Muslims, and some, by sometimes subtle religiously disguised racial bigotry and supremacy, nationalism and nativism instead of genuine patriotism, the exaltation of narrow-mindedness narrow antipathy towards scientific knowledge and learning, sexism, homophobia, and so on. That's not the gospel, but that's how people see Jesus in so many parts of our culture. And so part of what I hope as we work through this series is we get a real sense of the, of the grounded reality of, of what Paul is saying to the culture he's living in. And it's going to take us some interpretation because, as I said with the word guy, it's different than what we understand. But as we work that through, I hope it really helps us frame and understand what the real gospel is. The gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Um, the gospel that is to bring life for all ethnic, for all, all nations. Let me pray. Father, I am grateful for this book, and I'm grateful for um, the, the chance to reflect about this. This is very appropriate for us in our time to be able to shape again what it means to follow you and to be your messengers, um, to declare this good news to a world around us that is broken and is, um, is full of bad news. Um, I pray that you would help us to understand and to be to do that work of interpretation, to, to ask hard questions about what the good news looks like, not in Rome, because we don't live there, but in this part of Canada, in this part of the world that we may serve in and enter into in the months or years that come. Teach us by your spirit, uh, for we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read, uh, again, Romans uh, uh, doxology. You're going to hear this probably 20 times in the next little bit. This is the last few verses of Romans. Not doxology, benediction. It could be a doxology, too. Now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the gospel Paul's preaching, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the apocalypsis of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that the Gentiles might, so the nations, that word right there, might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.